Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. All right, it's rolling. In three, two, one. This episode of Crime Writers On is brought to you by you. Yeah, that's right. Enough of you have made donations to this little podcast that we've covered all the expenses of recording, editing, remote broadcast, and distributing this episode. So Rebecca doesn't have to pay for all that. So thank you. Thank you very much. Now, we've looked into other ways of paying for the podcast. You know, all those little commercials you hear at the beginning and the end, sometimes in the middle of your favorite podcasts. Well, the companies that place that advertising are very particular. There's lots of reporting requirements and hard deadlines and show timetables, and that's not a bad thing. That's good business. And uh, we thought about it, and you know, to be honest, we argued a little, and we've decided that no, we're not going to do that. We're going to stick with what's worked so far. We're going to ask you to support this podcast with a donation, whatever you think you can pay, to keep us, quote, on the air. You can go to crimewriterson.com. We've got several ways you can make a donation, including PayPal. And we kind of like it that you are the one supporting us because it makes us want to do a better podcast. Now, I'm not swearing that sometime down the road you won't hear us suddenly pitching fillintheblank.com. We're not there yet. And you know what? Some of us would rather not be yet another podcast telling you to be a customer of those same five companies. But if you could put a little tip in the tip jar to keep us going till maybe we get there, you know, we'd be grateful. Now, roll the music. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers on Serial, the podcast about a podcast and about a whole lot of other stuff, true crime, pop culture, writing, journalism, and of course, the continuing developments in the case featured in Serial Season 1, the conviction of Adnan Syed for the 1999 murder of Hey Min Lee. This week, we'll talk a little bit about the latest developments in that case from the team at Undisclosed. And we'll also talk about something some of us have been dying to dissect, the confounding season two of True Detective, the HBO show that had an incredible first run. And now, well, we're kind of all just wondering what the heck is going on. And we'll also be answering some of your questions. So joining me, as always, is my husband and true crime co-author. I guess you could call him my partner in crime, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hi, Rebecca. I'm just glad that I scored high enough in the poll to make it to the, the broadcast. Okay, a little primary humor. We're all familiar with that here in New Hampshire. Also with us remotely today from the University of New Hampshire studios in Durham, New Hampshire, is true crime author, journalist, former defense investigator, and licensed private investigator, Laura Bricker. Hi, Laura. Hello. And also joining us from his vacation, I guess, on an island in the middle of New Hampshire's most beautiful and majestic lake, Winnipesaukee, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hey, it's very peaceful here. <laughs> <laughs> Not anymore. 
Well, before we examine the latest in the Adnan Syed case and everything else we're going to talk about today, including, spoil alert, this very strange season of HBO's True Detective, let's get to some of our listener questions, which I've been collecting from email and Twitter and Facebook for a while now. Are you guys ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. First up, this is for Kevin and Laura. How much of what's being revealed on Undisclosed were things that Sarah Koenig probably learned about but didn't include in the serial because she couldn't back it up? What is the journalistic standard? So, Laura, why don't you take that one first? Um, well, I guess in terms of things that you maybe have heard but you haven't been able to confirm, um, those are things that I wouldn't necessarily report. You need to have something either in court documents. You need, if you're having an unnamed source, you need to have an unnamed source that's somebody very credible or a backup source. Um, so I think you need to be very careful legally in terms of what you say as a journalist. You know, look at what's happening to the New York Times right now. You have to be careful that it's something that you can back up. What about you, Kevin? What do you think? Well, I have, can't can't really speak to what Sarah may have known and chose not to include in the podcast. Um, you know, I'm trying to think. I, I do know that you know we we heard her say that she got you know the stack of documents from Rabia, so I would imagine that a lot of Rabia source material was given to Sarah. So it's hard to say what you know why she would not have included. I, I'm still baffled about the whole lividity thing because I think that is just a huge. You know, let's run that the yellow highlighter over that page piece of of, of information, and I guess I can see why. But you know, I think actually the the whole lividity thing. If I'm if I'm not mistaken, it, it wasn't in, in in Rabia's blog. It was actually in Colin's blog, who is you know one of the three people on undisclosed. He was the one who kind of like really dug into that forensic clue, which I I still think is big. And then it leads to all sorts of other questions about you know well where was Hay and why was why was she would have been taken to someplace else. And, you know, the who often leads to the why. Right. Or the how leads to the who and the why, whatever. But, um, no, I don't know. I guess it, it just seems like there were more things as far as what the journalistic standard should be. You know, Laura's right. You have to try to get it confirmed somehow or find it in an official document. So at the very least, you can attribute it to, an you know, an official investigator. Right, right. Well, I think that, um, Toby, this is a follow-up to you. You know, it seems to me what the Undisclosed team is doing is they're really conducting an investigation. You know, they're not, you know, reporting, confirming. They're conducting an investigation. I know they're doing the best that they can to sort of stick with things that they can back up. But do you think they should be held to the same standard? Or do you think sort of conducting the investigation is a different format? And they are free to sort of speculate and and throw things out there that are theoretical or that, you know, may or may not be something that they have all the documentation for. What do you think, Tony? Yeah, no, I don't, I mean, I, I don't think they, they claim to be, you know, journalists necessarily. It seems like it's a defense investigation. So I, I yeah, I don't, I don't think like sort of strict journalistic standards are need to be held to them. Okay. So um, another one for, let's see, Toby, I'm going to come back to you now. In terms of undisclosed revelations, should Sarah Koenig weigh in or acknowledge them? She is the one traveling around the country talking about season one. Sometimes she appears at events with Rabia. Is her silence on this new evidence uh, meaningful? What do you think, Toby? Uh, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think she she you know she created a, a product, this podcast that was kind of revolutionary and extremely popular, and she's going around and talking about that and the, I, I assume the process. And I, I think you can sort of disconnect what she did and the podcast and, and sort of this modified form from the actual 
facts of, of Adnan's case and, and certainly what's happened to it since. So, you know, I, if she wanted to comment, I guess that's fine. But I, I don't think there's any reason for her to or, uh, or she's obligated to in any way. Laura, just following up on something Toby said, he he redescribed what the undisclosed team is doing as a defense investigation. And that uh, brings me to a question that got posed for you. And I think this is actually a good question and one that we haven't maybe been clear about. What is a defense investigator and why don't I know anything about those people? (laughs) You know, that's really interesting. I didn't know anything about those people before I took that job. Um, So defense, not every private defense attorney is going to have a defense investigator. Most um, nonprofit uh, defense organizations like a public defender system or the Innocence Project, they will have defense investigators. Usually these are people that are licensed private investigators that work uh, in concert with the defense defense attorney to basically do the same job as a police investigator, but for the defense. So you're going to be going out and conducting witness interviews, uh, doing background checks, taking crime scene photos, um, pretty much anything that needs to be done uh, from an investigative standpoint to help bolster the defense's case. When did you become a licensed PI and why did you become a licensed PI? That's something I've always wanted to know. Oh, well, I became a licensed PI when I took my job as a defense investigator. Uh, The public defender program that I work for required that all of their investigators have a license. Um, It gives us more credibility and also, you know, holds us to a little bit higher standard when we're testifying in court and when we're out doing the job. So have you always been the kind of person that like, you know, looked for clues, you know, solved mysteries, uh, followed up on things? Are you just like a really curious person or, or how did you get into that? Did you that? grow up being Nancy Drew? I did. <laughs> I Harriet actually, the Spy? Yeah, no, I did. And it, and I got caught being Harriet the Spy. I used to carry around my little notebook and take a notes on people <laughs> in school and what they were up to. And I was outed uh, when my notebook was revealed one time. So yes, I was a little bit like that. That's really interesting. I think that um, I think I, I fancy myself to be a bit of an amateur Nancy Drew, but I'm probably not as good at it as you are. Okay, so uh, next question. Um, this is for Toby. I have two versions of this question, and I think I like the new version better. This is one from Facebook. Is it just me, this person asks, or is Toby being unintentionally obtuse in his devil's advocate archetype? What do you think, Toby? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't take a whole lot of effort on my part to be obtuse. So I would say it's 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 certainly unintentional. Well, let me let me throw out the real question. I think this is the the meatier version of this question. Maybe gets a little bit more into the content. Somebody else asked, "I like that you were the most cynical about Adnan being innocent, but that you aren't a hardliner like many of those people on Reddit." Question: What would it take for you to tip over and be in the innocent camp? Um. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think. You know, there's a couple of different things. Uh, you know, obviously, if there was something that was sort of definitively exculpatory that showed that Adnan was clearly innocent, that would be one thing. Or if they found somebody else, you know, in my mind, one of the things that's kind of lacking from the Adnan is is innocent case is that there what's is there a plausible evidence based counter theory about what happened. So I think that th- those are sort of the two things that would that would make it work. And again, you know, I, I I'm not you know fully convinced that he's guilty, but I I, I don't think the case has been made. You know, the the jury was wrong. Right. So so the case has been made that maybe the investigation was bad, the evidence was bad, 
But for you, the case hasn't been made that Adnan didn't do it, right? Is that what you're saying? Right. I mean, I, th- I think I think the prosecutor can be wrong in his theories about what happened, but that you know that doesn't necessarily mean that Adnan is 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 innocent. It's just that the the prosecutor got that aspect of it wrong. Right. So, Laura, I have a question for you. Then this is a this is a question from me to you. Um, you know, we heard uh, I don't know a month or two ago that Barry Sheck and his team have gotten involved in the case, and you know the Innocence Project is very much a DNA based. The, the wrongful conviction turnovers are usually based on DNA or hard evidence. Yet we haven't heard any of that sort of coming out that the DNA had been tested or that there was a timetable for it to be tested. You know, and the reputation of Barry Sheck is that he only takes on cases where he knows the person to be innocent. But again, there's that sort of missing piece. Did hearing that make you think that there's just maybe something big that we just haven't heard that they're just holding really close to the vest on the defense side? There could be. I mean, I think there are a lot of holes in the cases we've talked about before, and I think there's enough uh, there to raise reasonable doubt. Um, In terms of the DNA, I mean, who knows? That's something that we really don't have a lot of information about. I think that um, like Kevin had mentioned earlier, the lividity, that definitely pokes a lot of holes in Jay's timeline of the case. I'll be curious to hear what they have to say, um, but I'm, I have no idea what it's going to be. Okay, Kevin, I'll come to you. I'm gesturing over here like, where's my question? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like like uh, Governor Kasich at the uh, the debate. Like, send me a question, please. Okay, Kevin, do you, do you want to weigh in on what I just said about Barry Sheck and the Innocence Team taking on this case? Did that sort of raise your eyebrows and make you think there might be something they're holding close to the vest? Nope. Next question. Okay. Kevin, this is for you. Somebody wrote, I keep seeing you on TV. What's up with that? Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Why am I? Well, hell, have you seen me? I am damn good looking. I am charming as hell. And, uh, you know, have you listened to the podcast? I kind of know what I'm saying. So that's what they like. Plus, usually uh, I'm within driving or flying distance of those uh, those productions. So, you know, I will say, you know, this has been really it's all about, you know, really for us is promotion because, look, the four of us know, you know, we write books, but we're, you know, work a day writers. We, you know, we don't have the support that a Dan Brown or a Jody Pico or, you know, uh, Janet Ivanovich, you know, three great New Hampshire-based authors. They publish so many books, there's only so much you can go around. So it's left to us to really kind of promote ourselves. This is one of the reasons why we decided, let's do this podcast so people know about us. And, hey, thank you out there, listeners, for buying our books. You know, um, again, we haven't you know done enough to like change our tax bracket but uh you know it's all part of you, you know the um the, the, the public machine. the machine yeah i mean it's left to us to to market ourselves and so any kind of exposure we can get and i you know i don't think it's so bad for our genre true crime you know to show that there are people who are authors that write about this stuff that do a, a deep dive and spend a lot of time writing about these cases so not all these cases you know i'm familiar with to start with you know get a lot of information about it like any other expert, you know, that may weigh in on a particular topic. And so that's, you know, that's what I do. I'm curious. The, the, I think there's sort of been this split. This is a follow-up question. There's sort of been this split in true crime now. I think the serial really is the was the big standard bearer for now what we're seeing. There's this big division where true crime is becoming a little bit more mainstream, a little more, let's say, palatable to the intellectuals or people who don't think of themselves as somebody who would watch Investigation Discovery maybe, even though I know a lot of people watch it and they, yeah, they, they you, just say they don't. You have 48 hours and Dateline NBC. Autopsy have been on, on HBO. Well, no, no, but, uh, network television. Mm-hmm. 
regular network tele and been on for years mm-hmm. and 48 hours usually win Saturday night in the ratings mm-hmm. you know so the idea that people aren't interested in the the drama of a real life crime is a fallacy you know what happens is that a lot of people see the stuff on TV or they read about it in the on the internet and maybe they just are burned out and they don't want to read a book about it right, right. so so i know that like Robbie is going to be writing a book you know, and Reddit was like saying she's got like a million dollar deal, which is just There's freaking n- ridiculous. No way that's no, true. <laughs> no, that's just, yeah. You know, it, it, you know, they always say, and the, the other guy's going to back me up on this, in the, the trades, when they announce that someone got a deal for a book, there's a sort of code where they'll say like, in a nice deal with Double Day, so-and-so gets the rights to this. And then there's like, so a very good deal. And then like for us, it's like- A handsome deal. No, yes. A ha- yes. And, yeah, you know, <clears throat> and there's like sort of like this unspoken can like pay rate like, like what the advance is going to be and so for us it's always in a deal <laughs> there's no modifier we're right, we're right. In, in scare quotes <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> they put the quotes in. it's not even those smart quotes that like turn in one way on the one end and you know you know i don't know if, if we're going to be as a public burnt out on the adnan case by the time that comes out between serial and undisclosed and all these other sort of ancillary things i think people will follow it in the news because mm-hmm. they're really interested in seeing the resolution but i don't know at what point we say, okay, uh, I've, I've had enough of this this story. I'd like to hear something else just as compelling. Right. The, the true crime TV shows. Now, Laura, you've been on one of those, right? Yes. Was yours, did it contain reenactments and maybe some over-dramatized um, narration? Oh, it did. And I had the privilege of narrating over a bedroom scene. Oh, boy. <laughs> did you use your sexy voice? Well, I didn't know I was going to be narrating over the bedroom scene. And all of a sudden I looked up and went, oh, God. Yeah, that happens. I mean, this is the thing that I'll say is that you give your very earnest truthful interview to the producers. You, you, you talk about the, you know, the, the work that you did. They ask you questions. I actually won't answer questions when I don't know the answer. I yeah. don't, I'm just really uncomfortable doing that. Like, I don't want to use their research to answer questions. Mm-hmm. But when they edit it together, and yeah, sometimes you end up editing and yeah, you, scene. I can think of two cases, two instances where they did our books. And like, you know, you expect, you know, that it's, things are going to get boiled down because it's got to be a half an hour or an hour. But there were two, it was like, wow, you know, they just like took so many liberties about changing um, like how many people lived in the family and the ages and then the timeline. Right. And you're just like, I don't even recognize that. Right. And I know yeah. that we had like once one source. I won't n- give specifically who it is, but, um, you know, had been very, very good to us and then saw how he was portrayed in one of these TV shows that we have no say over how it gets done and was very angry and just like now we've burned this guy. Right. And it's like it's not even really our fault. Right. Um, but, you know, what we think about what we do in true crime is we're taking a, a much bigger story and we're boiling it down. I always say it should be like a map. You know, it's like you can't have the entire mountain there, but you should look at the map and say, oh, well, the mountain is here and the lake is here and the city is here. And sometimes, you know, like they start rearranging the topography just to make it fit an hour you know, sometimes people think like you had something to do with that. Which is why, listeners, if I could give you a piece of advice, I would say if a true crime author or a podcaster like Sarah Koenig wants to talk to you because of your involvement in a case or your peripheral involvement, talk to them. Because if you don't talk to them, when it gets produced, it may be edited together in a way that you haven't contributed Well, well who's, who's the, the classic example? Jay. 
Yeah, exactly. Jay did not participate That's in right. Serial. That's right. And so he had very little opportunity to shape the narrative. He could have shaped it. He could have told things that were completely untrue and Sarah would not have been able to counter them because that's what he – I mean it's like he could have changed the entire trajectory of the, of the, of the show. But even the, the truth is he understands it to be. Right. You know, he could have, have done that. And Absolutely. I think, Laura and Toby, what do you think? If Jay had weighed in, would the narrative uh, – or at least at least the way that we and the public perceive Jay – would that not have been influenced to some extent? Yeah, I mean, you have to think so. I mean, he was just a, he was the mysterious Jay who didn't have a voice. And, you know, a lot of stuff was attributed to him. And every once in a while, you'd hear a snippet of him from a trial. But yeah, I mean, he was, he was, his persona in that story was really left up to whatever Sarah felt like doing. But again, you know, I could see where from his standpoint, either A, he's like, why would I want to spend time talking to somebody about this like awful time in my life or B he might have been suspicious about how what he said was going to be actually used so you know being complicit in somebody demonizing you or uh, or calling into question your integrity I, I, I think that's a, that's a that's a tough choice sometimes what do you think Laura I mean I don't think Jay would have had any way to know how big and how popular Serial was going to be. Um, but I do think that by him not talking, it gave us as listeners sort of this impression that he was hiding something. There was a reason he wasn't talking. Uh, his lawyers told him not to talk. I don't know, but it, it did give him that sort of air of mystery, air of guilt that we shouldn't necessarily assign, but I think I did. I, th I think it's much easier to, to yeah. do that. Okay, so Toby, after like hearing all this, just one last question for you before we move on. Would you ever consider writing a nonfiction book or even basing a novel on a real case, sort of listening to us talk about all these things that we have to think about and do and the hoops we have to jump through as we're, um, you know, putting these stories together? Yeah, you know, that's interesting. I was just reading an article that was an interview with a, a crime writer named David Peace, who's uh, British and uh, probably best known for the Red Riding trilogy that takes place in, in uh, England in the, in the 70s and 80s. And he was talking about how he thought, you know, crime fiction, the sort of highest point of crime fiction is taking actual events and then writing novels about them. You know, for me, I don't know. It seems like kind of a funny thing because it seems like you're not – there's going to be somebody who's on probably the losing end when you're trying to fictionalize something that people will recognize as, as something that actually happened. And, you know, because you're fictionalizing it, you're taking liberties, you know, and in fiction, you're certainly putting yourself in people's heads and ascribing motives and all this kind of stuff. So for me personally, doing that when there are actual, particularly if the people are still around and for them to read what my theory is about what they were thinking at a certain time or whatever. You know, I, I don't know how comfortable I am with that. One book, uh, Ace Atkins wrote a book, but it's about uh, Phoenix City, Alabama. It, it sounds like he did. He interviewed a lot of the people who were involved in this, in this incident and then wrote a lot of stuff, sort of close third-person stuff from these different people's points of view. And uh, which I thought I thought was was well done. It was interesting, but you know, there's definitely bad guys in it, and those bad guys are real people who are presumably still alive. So I, I could see where people would. Uh, myself personally, I, I think it would be hard for me to feel comfortable with that, especially around people who are still alive. Right, especially the maybe bad guys. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. So I want to follow up on something we talked about uh, last time we were all together. We sort of did our recommendations of podcasts that we should listen to. And I mentioned that I was going to try listening to a podcast called Breakdown, which was produced by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution about a uh, likely wrongful conviction case. And I understand that Toby and Laura, you both listen to Breakdown, correct? Yep. Yes. Okay. I would just love your, your reaction on it. It could not I mean he was very transparent about, you know, trying to be like serial, but it couldn't have been any more different. I mean, the, the narrator, uh, Bill Rankin, the reporter to me, he was very like Mr. Rogers in his delivery, maybe a little Jim Neighbors-y and, and very sweet. Um, Lindsey Graham would be a, a good example of sort of like the way that he sort of presents everything, very kind of soft-spoken. But, you know, there was this town and there were these people and there was this case. Laura, what did you think of the case and what did you think of the way that it was presented by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution in this podcast? I liked it. Um, I listened to it at the gym. So that was, uh, but I found it easy to follow. And I liked how Bill sort of went on little tangents, um, which is something I do. You know, he he did spend a lot of time talking about the dog at Stroop Stoop or whatever that was. Uh, <laughs> but I, I liked it. And I liked the fact that he was upfront from the beginning, you know, and he reiterated a lot. This was a breakdown in the system. And he highlighted that as he went along. But I found it very easy to follow um, after Undisclosed, where I was just getting so overwhelmed. I found this a story that was easy to follow because he recapped it each episode. He'd recap what happened in the last episode. And I thought the use of the multimedia on their website with the photos and the bios of all the characters also really helped um, bring it all together. I think that's something newspaper reporters can do really well that maybe that they're not doing, um, you know, and mm-hmm. that I think even better so than public radio people in a way. What did you think of the podcast, Toby? Uh, well, full disclosure, I, I don't think I've listened to the last couple of episodes. But yeah, I mean I I thought it was I thought it was good. It was a little bit more like a traditional journalism piece and just just put out through a podcast form. It, it was more of a narrative than than serial was where serial would sort of become fixated on an issue during a, a certain episode and then you move on to a different issue and it wasn't like well this happened and then the next episode would be picking up sort of chronologically that being said, I you know I found it really interesting. I I, I thought the the narrator uh, was good, and you know I, I think there's so many sort of compelling stories about where the system is kind of broken down in you know really tragic ways for people, and sort of examining that and how it happens. I thought it was pretty compelling. I think it's an important story. I think probably the most interesting part of it to me was the under resourcing of the defense, and that they had this one you know, public defender who was driving around the whole state, you know, basically working on cases. Um, Kevin and I watched an excellent documentary about public, under-resourced public defenders called Gideon's Army. This The podcast reminded me very much that that is a really important documentary that if you're interested in the justice system, you know, Adnan Syed had an expensive lawyer. His case was well-resourced. And, you know, many would say it still fell apart in a lot of areas. People with no resources that are putting on defenses, it's incredible what they are up against. And in this case particularly, it is very clear from the beginning that there is a strong, compelling other suspect and that there's a very good chance this guy was wrongfully convicted. And they just don't have the resources to look into it. So, Kevin, are you going to listen to it now that we've uh, sold it to you? Oh, yeah. No, I definitely wanted to. I just was caught in some other things. And, uh, yeah, it sounds great. I, I did listen to parts of it in the car when I fell asleep. <laughs> you were driving. And I woke up and I heard the voice and I fell back he asleep. He has a very soothing voice. It's he not- does, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like the Jim Neighbors analogy. But, but no, I'm, def- I'm actually very excited to get in on, on this. I'm just... 
you know, I've been listening to Undisclosed, and that that's a long podcast, and and then a couple other ones that I really enjoy. It takes up so. a lot of brain power. Well, let's let's switch over and talk about Undisclosed. As many of you know, I've been a production consultant to that podcast. I'm not a contributor to the content. I don't report or look for facts. I'm just sort of helping them out with their technical side of their production. But it is best in any case for me to not be the one um, talking about it and asking questions about it. Kevin, you're free to ask me questions, but I'm going to throw it off to you now to talk about Undisclosed. Okay, get out of that microphone spot. Walk all the way over here. Coming over. Okay. Uh, all right, I'm in the driver's seat now. Hi, guys. That, that's a compelling visual. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and he's awake. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay, so actually, Laura, you said something um, I'm just picking up on. Are both of you still actively listening to Undisclosed or have you given up? I have given up, quite honestly. And when you were talking before about burnout on the Adnan case, I have to admit I'm burned out. I need a new case. It's not that I'm not interested in what happens to Adnan at this point, but I feel that we have overanalyzed and looked at every detail and I'm ready for a new case with new details to look at. How about you, Toby? Yeah, you know, I, I'm i not, like, following it, like, picking it up every time a new episode comes out. I mean, I've been kind of listening here and there. It's, it, you know, it's demanding listening, which uh, I don't always have time for when I'm listening to podcasts. So I... I'm not completely up to date, I guess I would say. Yeah, we said that before. It, to me, it's a lot like um like a, a delicatessen sandwich in, in New York City. It's like you know like five inches of pastrami on rye. It's it's a, it's a lot to get around. Okay, so that that being said, let's talk a little bit about some of the bigger points, and I can get everybody caught up because I'm sure not everybody listening to our podcast has gotten all the way through the Undisclosed podcast. Now, in a recent episode. The Undisclosed team talked about a lot of confusion over Adnan's age at the time of his arrest. Now, in court, uh, they said he was 18 and therefore ineligible for bail in a capital crime, but he was really only 17 and he would have been eligible. Now, um, even when they straightened out the bail appeal at a bail appeal hearing, the judge declined to grant bail for, among other reasons, stated fear that he would escape to Pakistan. Now, Laura, the team said that by being incarcerated pre-trial put Adnan at an extreme disadvantage in contributing to his own defense and the perception of the jury and the public. Now, what do you think about that? Well, I'm I'm going to be the devil's advocate here. I, I disagree. I mean, honestly, it is the norm in murder cases for defendants to be incarcerated without bail. I think it's the rare exception where somebody is actually out of jail awaiting trial on murder charges. And it's usually in cases where people post these incredibly huge, ridiculous bond amounts when the people have the means to do that. In cases that I've worked on in major cases, you know, the attorneys and the team, the investigators and the support staff meet regularly with the clients in jail. I think where it could be a disadvantage here is because, uh, you know, there have been issues raised about possible ineffective counsel in Adnan's trial. And I could see how he would have had less contact with his attorney if he had an attorney that wasn't as diligent about going to see him and keep him updated. But I can say if he had an attorney that was going to see him, which is, you know, would be the norm um, to consult about witnesses and trial strategies, then he wouldn't have been any more disadvantaged than any other pretrial murder client. One of the other things you had mentioned was that it would prejudice the jury having him incarcerated. And I'm assuming that's because he would have shown up in court in the jumpsuit 
perhaps? Is that what you were getting at with that? Well, I, I'm not quite certain what the I'm, I'm, I'm certain he probably would have had an opportunity to put on civilian clothes. I mean, most defendants do. In some yeah. some states, they, they, that's prejudicial to have him come in in the pumpkin suit, right? Well, and that's what I was going to say. I mean, most most places they're going to let you. I mean, this is one of the jobs that one of the less glamorous jobs of a defense investigator is going out and getting court clothes for incarcerated <laughs> yes. clients. Yeah. Um, you know, what look do you want today? A little uh, pastel to make you look a little softer. So, you know, there is an opportunity. And I think it would be prejudicial to state that the person had been incarcerated. And most defense attorneys would make sure that didn't come in before the jury. Now, Toby, the undisclosed team, they made a lot of hay over the state's proffer that uh, he was Pakistani. And of course, which we know he's not. He's, he's American uh, of Pakistani descent. But they talked about how uh, the Pakistani culture was violent. And they, they also made reference to some other case where the Pakistani defendant fled the country. Now, Toby, can you imagine a prosecutor today saying, you know, giving that argument against bail? Uh, I would hope not. I mean, that's kind of ridiculous. But it's, you know, it's go back 150 years and they're probably, you, you could probably find transcripts where they're talking about some Irish defendant and about how his culture, you know, would lead him to this, that, or the other thing. So, you know, I, I think there's unfortunately a long history in our country of, of sort of generalizing about people's cultures or, or nations of origin. But I, I I think we've kind of gotten to the point now, and I guess maybe within the last 10 years, where I think that would be seen as uh, as, as a pretty inappropriate argument in, in that case. Well, imagine the defendant were black or Latino. I, I mean, wouldn't there be you know some sort of outrage or, or maybe even grounds for an appeal on something so just uh, just distasteful as that? Yeah, I – I would think so, although I I do wonder, I've got nothing to back this up, so this is just purely conjecture, but that I, it wouldn't surprise me if there's enough sort of coded language used by prosecutors that sort of alludes to that stuff without coming right out and saying it at times. There's certainly been a lot of stuff coming out in the last few months about issues of race in the justice system. I don't think a, a prosecutor would come right out and just say baldly, because this guy's an African-American, we have to keep him locked up or else he'll do this, that, or the other thing. But I I have a sense that, at least in some areas, that enough stuff is kind of encoded in the system that it, it probably takes place without it needing to be said quite as blatantly. All right, Rebecca's waving at me madly to turn her microphone on. She wants to jump in on Oh, this. there's absolutely coded language in the justice system. I mean, think about any time somebody is making a case against a defendant on the prosecution side and they talk about lack of ties to the community, you know, support from the community. It's like that that is very often coded language for they're from a bad place and therefore, you know, they're very likely to fall in back with bad people. And that that's language that typically is when it's used by the prosecution, used against minorities, it's used against people from poor areas, very often people with a lot of support, with families, but the community, the word community is very often used on the, on the I think, on the defense side to, to make a compelling case about having the support and sort of being responsible on the prosecution side. It's very often used, I think, as a piece of coded language against who it is that's standing there and what color they are. Now, the cell phone episode could have been done in like 10 minutes. So Susan admits that despite her best efforts to decipher the riddle of the cell towers, which she put a lot of time into, there is no answer about uh, using that because it's junk science. 
Now, uh, because it, you could be standing right next to a tower, and depending on the call load and the tree cover and a bunch of other factors, it could ping a tower miles away. So you can't really use uh, cell uh, pinging tower information to, you know, like a GPS to locate exactly where somebody was. Now, the bigger implication of this, however, is that the cops in the state admit that it wasn't Jay's testimony alone and it wouldn't be just the testimony alone to make their case. They needed the second thing, which was the cell tower evidence to map out the movements. And of course, now both of those pieces of evidence seem very dubious. So, Laura, do you agree that a Fry hearing on the scientific reliability of the cell phone records, e- either back in 1999 or at a future trial, that it would result in all of the cell tower evidence being inadmissible? Yeah, I think that's a strong possibility. I mean, I think this is something that courts are struggling with around the country. You know, when I was working on cases and we had cell phone records that needed to be introduced, typically, if it was something where there was a location that needed to be confirmed, you needed an expert to come in and testify about why this was correct and why this location was where the person was or whatever. But that would be challenged. Um, And I think that there is enough question about how this information is gathered and how accurate it is that you could challenge that and keep it out. Um, And back in 1999, I mean, in terms of, you know, the type of cell phone information that was out there, it was so much less sophisticated than what we have now. I mean, now I saw statistics that 90 percent of the U.S. population has a cell phone and only one in six of those people has GPS. And GPS is really the most accurate. So back in 1999, I mean, who knows, uh, you know, what you're getting. But I think it would have been incumbent upon the defense to challenge that a little more vigorously. Yeah, and there's one little weird thing that they they mentioned, was, which was that the prosecutors they did a test like with somebody from either AT and T or Verizon where they drove it was around, engineer, yeah, yeah, who, and went to different spots and like tested the signal strength and like where things would ping. It was the prosecutors that went along and they never wrote the information down, presumably because they they would not want it to be. Discovered. No, they they didn't let him write the information down. They they transcribed what he was saying so uh-huh. that so it wasn't discoverable because it was there. Note. But isn't Laura? Isn't that a Brady violation? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the whole thing is sketchy. This case has so many situations where information was not turned over to Adnan's defense team that just blows me away. At that time, cell evidence was so new. I think it, it's it's a little bit crazy that it came in at that point. Now I think defense attorneys are getting a lot more aggressive about challenging that, and it's a lot harder to get that information in. Uh, one quick thing, and since you guys aren't caught up, I, th- I think the most interesting thing about that is that Verizon's report that they sent over to the prosecution said incoming calls are not a reliable source of location data. And then what the prosecution used in the case were the incoming call records. And so the Fry hearing, I think, would have been based on that note even from Verizon saying this is not a reliable source of information. Rebecca, do you think um, we'll hear Adnan's voice in this podcast? I don't. Um, I think that it would be I think that his lawyers would likely advise him against um, uh, talking at this point. This is a very critical point, I think, in the defense process. And we heard a lot from him during serial, obviously. That's true. That's true. But I think that there was, again, sort of this idea. There were things that I know that he wasn't talking about or wouldn't talk about during serial. I mean, I think that, um, you know, that's you know, that's my strong suspicion. But I also think that the episode where we heard from his family, his mother and his uh, his brothers, that was really compelling to me. Those were voices that we didn't hear in serial. Those were voices that sort of spoke to the very human side of the defendant experience, being arrested, having your home searched, um, you know, being 17 and suddenly taken away from your family. And his brother at one point said that he moved into his room. 
you know, right after he was taken away. And that seemed a little weird. But then um, he said it was because I wanted to feel close to him. And I hope we hear more of that. I, I would love to hear from Adnan, but I don't think we will. OK, now I know you don't know specifically, but can you guess or would you guess are, is there going to be like a big reveal at the end of this, the Undisclosed podcast? Is it going to be something like, here's the suspect, here's who we think did it, or what do you think? I don't know, and that's my honest answer, but I would not be surprised. I don't, I'm not I'm not, not a participant sort of in the team's like private conversations about what they're doing and when and how they're going to roll it out, but it does feel to me like they're, have, they have building blocks, and I can't imagine uh, with how bright they are about the sort of arc of the story and the arc of sort of how a defense is put together, there probably is something very big coming. That's my guess. All right. Now I'm going to turn things okay. back over to Rebecca. Nothing like doing a microphone switch that no one can see. Okay. <laughs> All righty. So now warning to listeners, we're about to move on to something a lot spoilery. Uh, and, you know, we all know that uh, Toby famously spoiled season one of True Detective for at least one listener who thought that was a crime. Um, so I'm just giving you the opportunity now, if you haven't watched True Detective, if you're planning on watching True Detective season two, you are welcome to turn the podcast off at this point, except for the fact that I don't think we're going to say anything that you won't figure out in five minutes. And um, it sort of leads me to my first question for all of you guys who have been watching True Detective. I have a challenge. Can any one of you, in a minute or less, explain to me what the hell is going on in True Detective, (laughs) what the plot is, and... uh, I mean, season one, it was pretty straightforward, right? Dead girls, mystery. What the hell is this about? I can tell you. Uh, Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson are not in it. <laughs> end of end of description. <laughs> all right, Laura, how about you? Um, well, I've come to the conclusion it's all about a big, giant, interconnected conspiracy about making money on a land deal. And I'm like, who cares? Uh, what about you, Toby? I, you know, I, I was looking this morning at, at Slate's got this article where they're like trying to actually explain the whole plot and how everything fits together. <laughs> and it's extremely long. And, and even that was confusing. Um, I, you know. I kind of feel like it's one of those things where, you know, you're you're happier watching it if you're not trying to figure it out and you're just kind of letting it all kind of wash over you. But <laughs> the show seems to have a lot going for it. It has three, you know, A-list or close to A-list stars in it. Um, four, actually, you know, if you count the guy from uh, Friday Night Lights who uh, playing Woodruff. Um, what's that actor's name? Anyway, the cute one. Taylor Kitsch. Um, <laughs> yes. And it, it, it has, you know, uh, a lot of high quality production value. It has, you know, a lot of location, you know, a, has everything going for it that a good show should have. If you can't explain to me what's going on, can each of you just try to explain to me why it isn't working? What do you think, Kevin? I don't know, because I, I really think on paper it looks, you know, the treatment of it, I think probably looked really good. You got uh, the Coro's backstory with his son, which is really compelling. Bezzaridi's, uh, you know, woman in a man's world struggle. Um, Woodrow's closeted secret. And you got Frank the gangster, who's you know, wrong, you know, wronged in this mysterious. Vince Vaughn playing Vince Vaughn, basically. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I think the one of the things I think is pacing. I think the pacing is is, is kind of slow. I mean, the dialogue can sometimes be like really stilted. <laughs> Do you miss it? What? Anything? <laughs> Somebody wrote that, and then it was accepted. <laughs> Check this off my bucket list: being in a Mexican standoff with an actual Mexican. That was actually you know, I a good line. Yeah, it just. <laughs> I, I think Vince Vaughn's character is just written so. 
there there is they're trying to shoot for this like Shakespearean soliloquy type of dialogue that was in the first season and was all throughout Deadwood if you remember the Deadwoods mm-hmm. but it just I don't know why it's not working Toby why do you think it's not working Well I'll tell you the, the my first like sinking feeling was when they released those little um preview snippets and the first one was basically like mournful music and then all the leads kind of like you know staring sort of sadly and intensely into the camera one after another and I was just like my god they they like learned the wrong lesson from season 1 <laughs> and you know in in my mind and and this is why I kind of ruined that guy's True Detective season one experience is that, you know, I, I think out of two seasons or two seasons minus one final episode is that there was, you know, the first four or five episodes of season one were, I thought, really good, really compelling, like set up all this kind of interesting, eerie stuff. And then you just, you know, he couldn't at the end tie it all together. Like the, the result was a lot, lot less than the sum of the parts. The critical reaction to it, I, I, I guess just ignoring that part or they weren't as bothered by it as I was, you know, suddenly True Detective Season 2 was like this thing that's really looked forward to probably before you even put pen to paper on it. So I just sort of feel like what what his impression of what made True Detective Season 1 work what wasn't accurate, you know, and maybe it was this way in True Detective Season 1 and that the actors were better or whatever – but, you know, the dialogue is so – like watching Vince Vaughn try and say his lines, it's just it's, – it's really painful. And and it's the same same thing with um, Velcoro. You know, these guys are, are big-time actors and, and they're just – they're really struggling with their lines and I – you know. I, I, I agree with Toby. I think the thing about True Detective season one is that you had the Woody Harrelson character who on the paper, you know, up front, everybody was like, they were like normal people, right? They were just like, they were cops. They were sort of doing cop stuff. You know, he had his wife. They lived in the house, the suburban house. And then you had uh, the Matthew McConaughey character who was like the weird, soulful, dark horse that threw everything sort of akimbo, right? Like he would, he was in the room with all the cops and they would just be having cop conversations. And then he would say something like real dark and weird and everyone would, would, would be like... You're weird. And then all the conversations with he and Woody Harrelson together, Woody Harrelson would be like, yeah, that was really weird, man. And in the first episode of this season, A, we didn't have a body, really. It didn't open with a body being discovered. And B, we were introduced to four lead characters, all of whom were really weird. And that is just too much for me. But, you know, for for me, it's the storytelling device of season one where we're in the present day and we're looking at some – we they keep asking questions about something in the past. Extra mystery. And you see the difference in Matthew McConaughey. There, it, it was really suspenseful. Mm-hmm. And you're like, why is this like this? You're what to, happened? That's kind of like, you, like you're trying to figure that out but in, in a very um, you, you know, not convoluted way. It was really compelling about, uh, okay, well, why are these two guys not friends anymore and what's the deal? And is Matthew McConaughey really the – Perhaps the killer, they, they, or Woody Harrelson, is or he Woody Harrelson. Killer, yeah. You know, you just you just don't know. And that was a great storytelling device, and I think part of why people got caught in when you mix it with all the other great stuff. And you know, this was just really more conventional 
straightforward. And, you know, we had a time jump of a couple of months. But that's it. So Laura, Colin Farrell shaved his mustache. That was the big thing. <laughs> yeah. And that, that kid was for sure not his son. We knew it right away. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Laura, what do you think is not working about this season of True Detective? This season of True Detective? Well, I'll, I'll go back to what you were saying, Kevin. Uh, you know, I think season one worked for me because of the characters. The characters, they were creepy. Like you said, I was waiting for Matthew McConaughey to be the killer. I, and it was it was pretty creepy. There were parts that were disturbing. I felt disturbed, but I kept watching because it was so disturbing. Season two, I just don't feel like the characters um, are connecting for me. And there's all these side characters that are just sort of thrown in there. And this is one of my biggest problems. And they're not developed. So I can't remember their names. I don't remember the context. And I think the irony of all of this is that one of these side characters that we saw for like five minutes is going to end up being the man or the woman with the bird mask on their head. Um, <laughs> I forgot which, about the bird mask. <laughs> and, and this is, I'd like to say, I want more creepiness. I want more like Twin Peaks weird creepiness bird mask and less law and order. That's what's not working for me. There was even a chase scene in the season intro detective that was the least interesting, least exciting, least climactic chase scene I have ever seen. And let me just ask a follow-up question because I, well, one small thing, which kind of really bothers me, and I want to know if you guys notice this, uh, the Woodruff character, he's deep in the closet, right? He will do anything, really, to stay that way, to have people not find out that he's gay. He's gotten someone pregnant. He plans to get married. He's really going to extreme lengths in this, in this show to sort of hide his true feelings and his true identity. Given everything that's going on right now in our culture— and, you know, I'll say it, Bruce Jenner coming out as Caitlyn Jenner and, you know, the transgender movement that's happening right now and everything that's going on. Gay marriage is now legal in, in the law of the land. Does this or any other aspect of this season of True Detective feel culturally out of step to you with, like, what's happening in the world right now? What, what do you think, Toby? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that storyline would have been more compelling in, like, the 70s, you know, where, where there would have been, like, real consequences for them if people had found out. You know, there obviously is some social backlash, I guess. I mean, I, I think it's probably easier to be heterosexual than homosexual even today. Yeah, I, it, that that's seemed odd. I, you know, there's a lot of things that just kind of feel off about this season. Like I, I, I spent quite a bit of time trying to think about like what was really praiseworthy about this season. That, that's a good question. What is praiseworthy? That's a challenge. Well, one of the things I thought was, a, was uh, you know, the Benavides character – you know, at first I was like, my God, somebody said you got to have a strong female character and he just changed one male character's name to a female character, but didn't change anything else about it. She basically acts like a man, except every once in a while she's like, well, you know, I'm little, so I carry a knife because anybody can, any guy can beat me up. You know, and then I started thinking, well, maybe, maybe he's going to do something really interesting with when women act exactly like men, sort of the consequences for their actions are, are different than men who do exactly the same thing. And I thought maybe that was going to play out a little bit. And I, I didn't see – I'm on vacation. I didn't see the most recent episode. But to date, there really hasn't been much of that. Uh, there was like – they sort of fainted in that direction a little bit when she had to go to – The sexual harassment. Yeah, exactly. Her, yeah. But, they, you know, I and I even thought that. Like some – I read some places where people were like, oh, it's so funny, this stuff that she said about liking big dicks or whatever – I was like, I, you know, it just seemed like a very so, – something that like an eight, eighth grader might find clever or whatever. I, it just – it seemed it, – it was it was lame. So, Laura, can you say anything good about um, about the season of True Detective? I like the music. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I like the creepy overhead highway scenes with the music. But then, again, that leaves me feeling let down because – I feel like something creepier should be happening. Escape from Hooker Hill. I liked that scene. That was 
<laughs> like well, Escape uh, from Witch Mountain, except with it was Escape from Hooker Hill. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know that was that was. But it, again, that didn't. I was waiting for it to get a little creepier, and right. it didn't. More suspenseful. Like, yep. I would like to see the bird mask man run through the hooker party or something. One final question I want to ask you, Kevin, because I think we've talked about this a lot and how difficult it is for anything set in Los Angeles to have any kind of atmosphere. There are notable exceptions. I think Chinatown is a notable exception. I think L.A. Confidential, perhaps, is a notable exception. Uh, we watched a kind of marginal show on um, Amazon Prime oh, I called Bosch. Bosh. I, I thought like it was that very a much. marginal show, but what they did really well was make L.A. into a real place that had real atmosphere. Well, you know, the ones you just cited, uh, like L.A. Confidential and Chinatown, they take place in a different time period. That's right. And that lends itself to the atmosphere, right. right? The time and place. But unlike, you know, New York City or Boston or it, True Detective 1, you know, this Southern Gothic, L.A. Gothic is, is just doesn't work. I mean, they're trying to make it very industrial and ugly and give it character that way. Um, but it just, you know, on its own, I don't know. I just think maybe, you know, instead of calling it True Detective, it should just have gotten a different title because it's just going to be compared to the original. How about Escape from Hooker Hill? That was a pretty Hooker good Hill. Yeah, thing I was going to say... <laughs> I saw when it, I saw that almost the same thing in Bates Motel this season. Like, where is this trope of the, these secret sex parties with rich guys in tuxedos and beautiful women? You know, this eyes wide shut thing. Do those things really happen? Yes. You know, I, I'm gonna out my town. Toby says yes. <laughs> my town had a secret club. They happen all the time. But nobody wore a goddamn tuxedo to that, right? Well, they were all I know. It was in the police logs that women that looked like mistresses of the night were entering. Well, there was that um, Zumba club in Maine where all that yeah, sex was happening. Yeah. yeah, but the guy, it wasn't like 17,000. Okay. Well, let's just flip it. Okay. Are you guys watching anything good this summer? What's one thing that you have watched this summer that you really liked? How uh, about you, Laura? I really haven't. <laughs> okay. You've been gardening and watching True Detective? I have been, yes. I've been doing all my healthy eating things. So. Okay. What what about you, Toby? Any shows on right now that you're like loving? Uh, I, I've been watching with my son, a uh, who's 18, um, a show called Scrotal Recall on Netflix, <laughs> which is about – it's a British show, but it's about, it's about a guy who finds out he has chlamydia and has to contact all, all his sexual partners. Um, it, it's, 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 it's very funny. And uh, Silicon Valley I've been watching. I, I kind of was a little bit late on that one, but that's an HBO show that's very funny. What about you, Kevin? What are you loving this summer? Well, I know the one you're going to say. I'm going to agree with you, but I'm going to go with something else. Ballers with, with, with Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Yep. Uh, a lot of fun. Yeah, it was probably the best thing on HBO on Sunday night. It's, it's a good show. Super actually, sexist, but yeah, super fun. If you get past in, the sexism, then. Takes place in Miami. And look, Miami is like a really a good real location. They yes. use that very well. Yes. The sun and the, you know, and, and maybe Yachts. it's. Yeah, exactly. And, and, it, and the backdrop of the NFL. But Dwayne Johnson is just, he's charming as Dwayne all Dwayne Johnson's great. Yeah. Well, I'm going to say, and if, if anyone out there has not seen this show, this is my recommendation. I've been talking about it all summer long. It is on Lifetime, and it's called Unreal, and it is Great. It's about the producer of a show that really is The Bachelor. It's really about the back scenes of The Bachelor. Sherry Appleby's in it. She plays this incredibly complicated female lead character. It is a great, great, super fun, super addictive show. I can't say enough good things about it. What about Ray Donovan this season? Ray. What, Ray? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I'm I, enjoying Ray Donovan this I'm, season. You should out there play a drinking game. Every time someone says, sure, take a drink. I just We just had one, though, so we can't throw too many shows All in. right, sure, whatever. All right, let's, let's, uh, let's wrap it up with our favorite segment, or at least my favorite segment, something I like to call Crime of the Week. It didn't happen this week, but everyone's talking about it still. 
American dentist Walter Palmer has been crucified online and in the media for his big game hunt killing of a beloved lion in Zimbabwe, an illegal killing, as it turns out, of a lion named Cecil. We all know the story. I don't want to get into the details because, frankly, it makes me super depressed. Now some airlines are now banning the shipping of big game trophies. There's a real sort of real-life consequential backlash to this. But the question right now is whether or not Walter Palmer should have to pay in terms of prison time or extradition to Zimbabwe for what he did. And I'd love for you guys to go around, uh, sort of give me your reactions to the Walter Palmer, Cecil the Lion case, and what you think should happen to this guy. Uh, Laura, you first. Um, Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, I have nothing against hunting for food and overpopulation, but this, the details of this case are just, I think, pretty appalling. And, um, you know, he's saying that he paid guides and he was doing what he was supposed to do. But honestly, is he really, I mean, does he expect us to believe that he didn't think it was a little sketchy when these guys went out at dark and lured this poor lion out in such a way? I mean, that that doesn't really seem like good sport to me. So, um, you know, I'll be curious to see what happens, um, you know, but it's definitely ignited a firestorm of the hunters versus the pro hunters. And I think people are sort of losing the picture that there's nothing wrong with hunting for food, but hunting in this way is just not right. What do you think, Toby? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think he needs... To probably be extradited. I mean, you know, Zimbabwe is a lot of those countries rely a lot on tourism, and a lot of the tourism is safari tourism. So when you start eliminating the reason why people come, I mean, that, that that's not it's not just he, he shot a lion, but this whole practice, I think, you know, really puts these countries' in, economies in jeopardy because you do need to have these countries really rely on tourists coming going on safari, things like that. So it's, you know, the the killing of the lion, I, I have zero sympathy for uh, what he did, but it, it goes beyond just killing just a, a single animal, but it goes to sort of undermining the basis for a large part of their, you know, I, tourism is considered an export economy. It's a large part of their export economy is people coming to check out the wildlife. So I think it, it's more of a threat to their country, this practice, then is really um, is covered in the press here. What do you think, Kevin? Well, I think, you know, a lot of the people that were, you know, first to speak up, I think were people who, as a rule, are opposed to big game hunting to begin with. You know, I'm, I'm of two minds about this. I mean, I think that if these things are available, these, this, you know, hunting tourism is available in these countries, you know, like a safari then I think a lot of the responsibility is on the locals that are, it, in order to do this legally, you know, that the responsibility falls to them for the right permitting and to be, you know, operating within the laws of uh, of what governs hunting. And they shouldn't be luring endangered species. And I'm a little more concerned about the elephant that he allegedly killed. Like, you know, I just I, – I, I don't know. So – but to be extradited for this seems uh, – I, I, you know, a little much, but I don't want to minimize the the obvious tragedy that you know befell this national symbol, and you know, sort of the duplicitous way that it happened and cruel, 
Uh, yeah, and cruel. You know, it very, reminds me very much of the 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 Teddy Roosevelt story about you know the yeah. bear. I'm trying to remember if that's mm. real or not, but that yeah. that they were on a hunt and it wasn't going very well, yeah. and so that the people brought a bear. I'm uncomfortable with that comparison. I'm just gonna but, give you know, the quiet but coyote it's, it's, on that it's one. It's the opposite. <laughs> it is basically they 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 lured a bear so it'd be an easy shot for him to a kill, line, yeah. and and he didn't kill the bear. And that's, you know, the part of the the lore of where teddy bears come from. Right. Well, you know, Jack Hanna, beloved Jack Hanna, uh, famous uh, emeritus director of the Columbus Zoo, weighed in on that part of it. And he said this lion was so habituated, it was basically a cow sitting in a field. And he wanted to remind everybody that several years ago, a gentleman was in Yellowstone Park and killed an elk illegally, put him in the back of a pickup. He got uh, several years in prison for that. It actually is a crime and I'm not 100 percent sure, um, you know, killing something illegally is maybe all on the people setting it up. But that's, you know, that that's for that's for time to tell. And I, I do think we have to end it there. It's just kind of time to go. I think, you know, Cecil the Lion. <sighs> Hope you're uh, eating some good meat up there wherever you are, buddy. Does it change the way you think about Ernest Hemingway short stories? Oh, I never liked the hunting ones anyway, or the bullfighting ones. But that's just me. I love animals. I'm a softie. What can I say? I, either one of you guys animal softies or is it just me? Well, yes, I am totally an animal softie. <laughs> Toby, do you just, are you, uh, you know, don't care? Are you cynical about animals just like you are about everything else? <laughs> no, I, I don't kill animals. Okay. Well, Toby, thank you so much. And, you know, you are an island in the middle of Lake Winnipesaukee and you joined us anyway. And you can find all of Toby Ball's books on our website, Crime Writers On. Buy them. It would really help him out. Remind me, Toby, what's your Twitter handle? It's uh, Toby Ball NH. Thank you so much for joining us today, Toby. Thank you. And Laura Bricker, true crime author, former defense investigator and licensed private investigator. You can also find her books on our website, Crime Writers on. Laura, how can people find you on Twitter? At Laura Bricker. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks, Rebecca. And Kevin, how can people find you on Twitter? I'm at, at Kevin P. Flynn. And I am at Reb Lavoie. Kevin, thank you so much for coming in today. Rebecca, if nominated, I will not run. If elected, I will not serve. You can find out more about all the crime writers, including links to all of our books at our website at crimewriterson.com. You can also follow our podcast on Twitter at crimewriterson. Check out past episodes we've recorded. Find my email address if you want to send me a note. That's on our website, too. And sure, chip in a few bucks to keep this podcast coming your way. And if you can, leave a review on iTunes if you haven't already. It makes a huge difference. I'm Rebecca Lavoy. Keep the questions coming. We want to answer them. This is Crime Writers on Serial, and we will catch you later. Toby, are you on vacation? Is that? He's on Bear Island. Bear Island. Oh, my God. You're in the middle of Lake Winnipesaukee. <laughs> I am. I'm looking at Lake Winnipesaukee right now. That's fantastic. And Rebecca, so you're going to take his individual file and then merge yes, it? Yes, he is going to end? send me a Dropbox fantastic. audio file. So I'm recording him on a separate track on the phone. The worst case scenario, <laughs> so if your file is horrible, yeah. is that we'll use the phone <laughs> tape, which honestly, your, your phone, is that a landline that you guys have got there? It's a fucking island, Rebecca. <laughs> They, they ran cable halfway, you know, from Center Harbor to get out to Bear well, Island. They do. We we have like cable TV, and I'm on I'm on Wi-Fi right now. Right. Uh, wow. Suck it. Yeah, yeah. Electricity has to get there somehow. Okay.
Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.